Welcome to the Melbourne Business School podcast, where we answer the biggest questions in business today and explore the latest research. I'm your host, Yasmin Rupasinghe. Hello, listeners. It's a new season, and I'm pleased to present a fresh series of conversations with our faculty here at MBS. To kick things off, today I'm thrilled to be joined by Jen Overbeck. Jen is an Associate Professor of Management specialising in leadership, management and organisational behaviour. Her research digs deep into a range of topics that are key in our society and in today's chat we're going to take a close look at power and status, how they affect people, their place in a racial hierarchy, diversity and their role in movements like Black Lives Matter and the global protests sparked by George Floyd's death. Jen, first of all, welcome to the MBS podcast. Thanks so much, Yasmin. It's great to be here with you. I can't wait to get into this conversation with you today. Could you please start us off by explaining what power and status are? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, these are two words that we think of as going together much of the time. Um, Most people who have power are regarded as high in status and vice versa. But as academics, we spend a lot of time trying to be very precise about terms. And so uh, we've identified separate meanings for power and status. And when we look at power as a very objective source of influence and control, so it's your ability to get somebody else to do something that you want them to do, whether they want to or not. And that's typically through your control of um, resources that they want, uh, rewards that you can administer to them, or punishments and threats and their fear of what you might be able to do on the negative side. So if you can compel somebody to do something, then that's power. And then we can contrast that with status. And status is the ability to influence people, but it relies on their voluntary cooperation. You might have status because you're uh, wealthy and attractive. You might have status because you're an expert in something and people really want to listen to what you say. So if we think about um, the recent situation with coronavirus, um, somebody like Brendan Murphy, for example, who has um, expertise in public health and can give us all information that's very valuable, has been regarded as high in status. He doesn't have direct control over what we do. He doesn't directly um, have any ability to enforce or punish uh, people who don't obey guidelines, but it's because of our respect for him and the the information he provides to us that we tend to go along with the things that he suggests. Okay, I see. So tell me a bit more about how power and status, as you've just described them, relate to us now. Well, it's been really interesting um, to look at, for example, during the COVID period, one of the most massive workplace experiments in decades has been going on, and that's the sudden abrupt work from home experiment. And as a management professor, I've ended up in a lot of conversations with people about the challenges of dealing with this new reality of work from home. And what I've seen is that there seems to be a a difference between leaders and managers who are able to make this transition quite smoothly 
and others who felt very uncomfortable and whose teams maybe had more difficulty in rising to the occasion. And one of the things I think makes the difference is whether the leaders chronically rely on status versus power to influence their teams. So those leaders that are relying on status are already accustomed to building support, getting people on board, um, trying to harness everybody's voluntary participation in what the leader wants them to do, meaning that what, they're, what they need to do is align people and they need to activate their willingness as opposed to just giving commands and then standing over people and threatening them with something terrible if they don't do what they're told. And I think the kinds of leaders that use that latter approach have had a lot more trouble because COVID may, and work from home in particular has made it difficult to watch people all the time. It's made it difficult to be quite as threatening. Um, and you know, if that's the suite of skills that people are relying on, I think that's been a lot tougher. Fortunately, that is, seems to be the minority of managers. And in fact, we have some numbers about this. We know that really only about 30% of people fall back on that more power-oriented approach to influencing. And fortunately, about 70% of people are more comfortable using status and using voluntary influence. So, so that probably tells us a little something about the balance of success in work from home too. Mm, that's really interesting. Thinking about that 30% of people who take a power approach to management, what can they do to shift their approach? Well, the funny thing is they probably don't particularly want to. Um, people who use that approach, they, they seem to do it uh, for one of two reasons. There's a group, and this is a smaller group, so really only about 10% of people, simply have the belief that this is how power works. And you know, uh, if we're gonna talk about power and we're gonna talk about current events, it's inevitable that at some point in this conversation, one name is gonna come up, so I'll introduce it right now, and that's Donald Trump. Um, Donald Trump pretty clearly has the theory uh, that power is all about domination. And in fact, he has he has given quotes. He, he had a quote, a tweet last year that was, um, you know, basically use power or die, something like that. And just recently when talking about protests in the United States, he said, you know, it's, it's important to dominate, it's important to crush them. So about 10% of people seem to believe that it's a kill or be killed world and you just need to be tough. And those folks don't want to change their attitude and pretty much whatever we do, their attitude's not going to change because they're sampling information from the environment that confirms that belief. They pay attention to the times when, um, like Donald Trump talks about China's response to the Tiananmen Square protests and says, look, the fact that those protests stopped and the Chinese government is secure is evidence that that approach was correct. And so they're sampling evidence that supports that belief and they disregard anything that doesn't. What we can do something about is that remaining 20%, these are people who are operating out of this dominant sense of power, not because they think that's the only way the world can work, but because Typically what we find, uh, there's a really fascinating body of research on this where people don't recognize that they might have the capacity to, uh, to do any better. And some of my own research has looked at this. Uh, some of my own research has looked at what happens if, this is gonna be a little roundabout, but I promise we're getting to it. Uh, if somebody has power, 
but they don't have status, we see those people really, really negatively. If I'm about to interact with you and I'm aware that you have power over me, you can stop me from getting things that I want, but you don't have status. You're not in a very uh, high ranking role. I don't particularly respect you, whatever the case may be. I anticipate that you're gonna get in my way. I anticipate that you're actually gonna try to stop me and I end up being resistant to you and starting off with a negative interaction before you even have a chance to do anything. And my friend and colleague Nate Fast in the US has also done work on the other side of this showing that I'm not wrong to think that way because if you're aware that you have power over me and that I don't respect you, you actually tend to treat me in a more demeaning and humiliating way. And you do that out of your sense of insecurity. You're not sure you're gonna be able to control the situation. You're not sure that I'm going to respond to the things that you're asking of me. And so you preempt that by trying to put me in my place and by really overusing that power. But again, what I said is it comes out of a place of insecurity. It comes out of doubt over whether the person can do what needs to be done in the situation. And so the hope that that offers us is for about 20% of managers, leaders, coworkers, politicians, they're acting in a coercive manner. They're using power in an arguably negative way, but we can help them. We can reinforce their sense of competency. We can help point out the ways in which they can deal with the situation. And we can even express respect for them, which sometimes we might have to feign a little bit, but by, by bolstering their sense of their ability to handle things, we can bolster their willingness to rely on status and to be more participative as opposed to being really dominant. And so right now, workers, uh, who are dealing with managers who have been pretty controlling in the past can try really hard to keep open lines of communication and express respect for the manager and compliment the manager on successes. And those are all ways to, to divert to a more positive way of operating. Wow, that's so interesting to learn that we can influence our managers to everyone's advantage by practicing good communication and encouragement. Now let's look a little closer at our current situation, Jen. Does this power and status story help us understand anything about our situation in Australia right now? Like, for example, being stuck working from home because of COVID-19? I mean, I think there's a very simple explanation for being stuck working from home, which is the government told us we had to do it. <laughs> um, I will say that something quite interesting, you can tell from my accent, I'm American. So I'm quite attuned to what's happening in Australia, but I definitely always have an eye on what's happening in America too. And I, I've observed, and some other commentators have observed, that in Australia, we seem to have been much more compliant with government requests and restrictions. And for example, right now, we're all asked to continue working from home uh, if it's possible. I think that leaves the door open for some companies to determine that they think it's time not to work from home. But by and large, I think many of us still are and will continue to be for the foreseeable future. And I think that um, what I was talking about in terms of influence coming from a place of respect, 
I do think we in Australia like to be a little cynical about our government, and certainly Scott Morrison has taken a lot of heat since the election, um, and people haven't always expressed a lot of confidence. But the way the government rose to the occasion around COVID, um, the transparency that it showed, the way that um, instead of hoarding power at the federal level, uh, Morrison created the national cabinet and brought the state premiers into the conversation and really made them full partners in deciding how to proceed, the way public health was elevated and foregrounded as the guide to how we would proceed. I think all of that is very um, responsible for the way that Australians have voluntarily accepted the influence of the government. And so rather than trying to use power, now there had to be some, there have been people, and, and we've just heard about this this week in Victoria. Uh, this is the week when a lot of families were found to be um, socializing in ways maybe they shouldn't. And so there's been a, a bit of a crackdown announced on how much socializing can be done in the home. And that might be backed up by things like home visits and fines. So that's power. That's the government using its ability to sanction and punish to enforce behaviors that people don't voluntarily comply, in, uh, comply with. But the fact that there's been very little of that and there's needed to be very little of that, I think, speaks loudly to the degree to which Australians have voluntarily accepted influence. And that that's an indicator of the status the government has been able to achieve during this period, which I imagine surprises a lot of us um, that it, it's been quite strong. And you don't see that in the United States. The government has not been able to achieve that degree of status. Um, it's fractured. You have some individuals who at some points have had status, but because they're drowned out by other individuals um, saying conflicting things, there's been no kind of coherent message. And so the response has been a lot less effective. And yeah, so I think these dynamics can help us understand that quite a bit. Oh yeah, totally. I'm keen to chat with you about the Black Lives Matter protests. Can you explain the power dynamics in these protests, not just in the US, but also here in Australia, where the focus is on the lives and deaths in custody of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, systemic racism, and how people have responded? This has been such a fascinating thing to watch in so many ways. Um, I'll start by talking a bit about Black Lives Matter in the US. I do think that what's happening there is there's been you know, a, a pretty obvious history of use of coercive power. And by coercive power, in this case, I mean state violence, the, the police um, beating, um, harming, and killing people of color in the United States. And um, at, at rates that are disproportionate to population proportions, right? And I think that the, the George Floyd incident, for just a lot of reasons, um, it was so illegitimate. It was so clear to anybody watching the video that this was not a situation where that kind of force was um, potentially justifiable. And you know, so many times in the past that force has not been justifiable, but, but we work as human beings really hard to justify the use of power by people who are supposed to be in power. So it's a robust psychological phenomenon actually, that we want somebody to be in control. Um, we want there to be power. We want to feel safer in our lives. And if someone's in control, we just, we do feel safer. 
And so um, we'll work really hard to say that even abuses of power by the state are, are okay because we want to believe that we live in a just world and a just system. Well, this one was not just, and it was impossible to, to make it seem so. When you, when you listen to George Floyd in the last eight minutes of his life, uh, it is heartbreaking and it's wrong, and I think everybody saw that. And what that did was it gave courage and now legitimacy to a movement that has argued for changing the balance of power, the fundamental balance of power uh, in, in racial justice and in racial access in the United States. Um, and in the US, I think we see a history of efforts to increase diversity and increase inclusion, but in many ways that's been kind of skin deep, no pun. Uh, it's been theater in a way. Um, it has meant that job openings are made available, but real access to decision-making, agenda setting, and the, the tables of power, the tables at which power is exercised, that's still been withheld. Um, from people who have been underrepresented minorities in the past. And so right now there's an insistence um, that we want change to happen and we want that change to be significant. We want changes in laws. We want changes in what police can do. And you see a parallel conversation saying we want changes in hiring and we want changes in how people are treated in the workplace and that sort of thing. So the, the contrast that I see in Australia where uh, certainly there was a, a Black Lives Matter protest that occurred in Melbourne and another one in Sydney, um, and there is a bit of a nascent conversation around this. I do think that um, the population disparities are greater here. That's one thing that the uh, majority Caucasian, um, you know, English background uh, demographic is is stronger and more numerically dominant here than in the U.S. And so that makes the conversation a bit different. Also, I think, um, you know, Australia has, as an outsider, it's, it's easy for me to say this, that it looks to me like there is a significant history of ignoring and denying um, abuses and atrocities that have occurred. And the, the, it's difficult to have those conversations in Australian society. And so I think that conversation is just earlier here. Um, but this is a multicultural society, particularly in the cities, particularly in businesses. It's increasingly multicultural in government. And I think we're seeing the imperative for Australia to have these conversations as well. Um, it's just happening a bit more slowly. I saw a Guardian poll saying that something like, oh, I don't remember the percentage, so I won't even try to cite it, but a surprisingly large number, a number of Australians expressed sympathy for the Black Lives Matter movement, but simultaneously the belief that it didn't really apply here. And I think that's a mindset that we're going to need to change soon. That's pretty shocking and absolutely needs to change. So how do you think Australians should be having these conversations? 
Well, I think these are really tough conversations because we're talking about genuine power sharing and nobody ever likes to give up power. There's an exercise I do in my MBA classrooms. It's called star power. Uh, if any of my former students are listening to this, they will, they will feel some recognition. Uh, this is an exercise where over about an hour or two in the classroom, we actually create a stratified society by just making a bunch of economic trades and those economic trades end up sorting people into groups. There's a group on the bottom, a group in the middle and a group at the top. And unbeknownst to all the participants, I actually am giving some extra resources to the people on top. And that's because that's, that's how society tends to work is once you get to that top level, you have privileged access, you have insider information, you have better education and better social networks, you have better uh, health and health outcomes, um, you have the ability to hire support for the tasks of life. So there are all sorts of ways that life is easier when you're on the top. And then at some point during the game, I also hand over rulemaking to the people on top. And one of the things we see over and over and over is that the people on top uh, in this game are primarily concerned with defining the rules to protect the boundary of who gets to be in their group. So in other words, instead of ensuring that there's social mobility, they wanna make sure that none of them fall out of the top group and that they protect that lower boundary um, so that none of them actually have to leave. And just last week, I was hearing a discussion about the real implications of Black Lives Matter and the current protests. And one of those implications is that a lot of times white people have to give up our seat in something. So I listened to a podcast um, that was a discussion between three really fantastic, insightful, wonderful white people whom I love listening to. And they were talking about diversity. And one of them pointed out the irony that you've got, you know, three privileged white people having this conversation about diversity. And they pointed out that it, at some point, probably one of them needs to give up their seat. If they want to really have the inclusive conversation, it means somebody has to step aside so that somebody else can be in that conversation in a meaningful way. That is painful. That is a hard thing for people in power to do. Um, so I think part of the conversations that need to happen are among those people who are in power about really confronting what is it that we have right now and what might we need to give up and share you know, uh, this is a scary thing to say, so I don't want to frighten everybody into thinking, oh, you just have to lose everything that you've worked for. But but let's look for meaningful opportunities to share um, where I can step aside. I've had a say, I've had some privilege. Let me step aside and let me let somebody else be in this position for a while. Thank you, Jen. That's a great idea. And although it might seem scary, as you say, it's a meaningful action that people of privilege can do. Still thinking about the Black Lives Matter movement and how it's evolved in Seattle, I'm talking about CHAZ, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, and the way that people have actually managed to change the power dynamic there. What are your thoughts on that? Well, this is such a fascinating laboratory for power dynamics and, and power change. So we were just talking about power hierarchies need to change fundamentally if real diversity and, and genuine inclusion, not just lip service inclusion, is, is to be possible. 
And a lot of times what we see is the objection that, look, we can't just dismantle these systems that we have because this is what gives us stability and this is what gives us legitimacy. And look, I, I am not going to argue that I'm a full revolutionary. I, uh, I have a lot of loyalty and affection for stable, legitimate systems myself, but I find it both energizing and reassuring to see what's happening in Seattle in this Chaz district, um, this autonomous zone, because what's happening there is you, you had potentially a vacuum. The police left, the city authorities left, all of the sources of traditional control and authority departed from that area. And what you had, what you had remaining is protesters and we've seen some protests in the United States become violent and destructive. And you even saw some of that happening in this district at first when the police were departing. But you quickly saw the people in that area come together and create a participative democracy, essentially, a, a government. So rather than the anarchy and the violence that might have been anticipated, you saw people step into that vacuum and fill it with... Um, peer control. You know, there's a classic management study. It's one of my favorite studies. Many of us like it. Um, the title is something like uh, Tightening the Iron Cage. And it's a study of what happened when a factory transitioned from traditional top-down management to self-directed teams. Everybody who was part of the, the older management group was predicting that things are gonna fall apart, especially in manufacturing. You cannot turn this over to blue collar workers to manage themselves. They're just going to look for every opportunity to um, cheat, to steal time, to show up late, to shirk, to not do their job. But in fact, what happened was these teams got together and they established their own work rules. They established expectations of one another. Uh, they established their productivity goals. And the degree of uh, compliance and control under those teams was actually higher than it had been under traditional management. To the extent that some people complained um, that, wow, I'd rather have a manager. Like I could get away with stuff under a manager, but when I have to look my teammates in the eye every day and tell them what I've accomplished, suddenly I have to live up to a much higher standard and this is tough. And I think we're seeing that on the ground in Seattle. I think what we're seeing is an example of individuals in a community coming together, forming a team, forming a group, and being accountable to one another. And that can be an incredibly powerful way of controlling people's behavior and, um, and, and establishing norms that people will live up to. So it's, it's a really interesting real-world experiment. Now, what we have found historically is that in order to do this, it needs to become institutionalized. So this is, this is how literal revolutions happen. You have an overthrow of an existing authority, uh, some kind of ad hoc committee steps into the gap, but then they sit down and they write a constitution and a set of rules, and then they uh, come up with leaders. And that's how we then have stability moving forward. I'm not sure that's possible in this zone. Uh, there's no sense that the Seattle government is going to be supplanted. I don't think there's any sense that the city council is going to formally hand over this zone uh, to people, at least not, not at this point from what I've seen most recently. It seems like at some point there's going to be a negotiated return of this zone or some kind of a, a negotiated management system for the zone. Um, that, that 
uncertainty, that's where the risk lies that um, people, individuals who grow frustrated in the absence of clarity, they might decide to act up and create some problems again. So, so we're at this inflection point where either we need greater institutionalization in that area, uh, or we are probably going to see some dissolution. Uh, I think that's, that's how we typically see these things unfold. Hmm, let's see what happens there. Now, Jen, I've understood from what you've been telling me that power usually comes with hierarchy. Do you think protesters need more prominent leaders to really affect change? The reason I ask is because it could seem sometimes like there isn't a clear voice of leadership in the movement. Sometimes. I mean, like Martin Luther King or Malcolm X were clear voices in their day. If you think back to the global financial crisis in 2008, um, one of the things that we saw was kind of a similar movement that arose called Occupy Wall Street. And Mm -hmm. Occupy Wall Street was explicitly and avowedly anti-hierarchical. One of the reasons that I believe Occupy didn't persist, they had a ton of energy and they were really, I think, being heard for a while, but they did fall apart. And I think one of the reasons we saw that is that they were not able to institutionalize themselves, that their anti-hierarchical nature meant that, for example, if a news reporter went in and wanted to talk to somebody, or let's say a government official went in and wanted to then negotiate a way of acting on the real issues that Occupy had, there weren't point people, there weren't liaisons, there weren't uh, spokespeople who could engage in that negotiation and actually make commitments that, that the counterpart could rely on because then they'd have to go back and have things ratified and validated by the rest of the group and everything could change. So it was not focused enough and therefore the, the little bit of success that they were having wasn't, wasn't able to be turned into a larger and lasting success. So I think we're seeing more organization from the group in Seattle. I think we're seeing um, the potential for there to be some leaders. Now, I don't think it's necessary to have a strongly vertical hierarchical system, but I do think that human beings operate on some form of hierarchy. Now, let me go back to talking about power and status, bring this around full circle. If we think of the hierarchies as being defined by power, being defined by coercion and force and fear and punishment, then yeah, then I think that's where we run into problems. I think that's exactly what the protesters are objecting to, is a society that's based on this kind of differentiation among people where some are protected from uh, force and violence and others are subject to it in order to keep the order. I think what we're seeing in Seattle, um, and I think what many protesters around the world, including in Australia, are arguing for is let's substitute these power hierarchies with hierarchies that are built on status. They're built on respect. They're built on um, the group's 
admiration for and willingness to listen to a person. And so we can have somebody who's a representative. We can have somebody who's a leader, somebody who goes off and negotiates with the city, for example, and that person can make commitments that bind the rest of us. But they bind us because we voluntarily decided to put our faith and confidence in that leader. Um, and they have to earn that, and then they have to continue earning that, and that's what makes it sustainable. Um, if the person starts to compromise their their duties to the rest of the group, then we'll lose confidence and we'll revoke our support. And that is a that is a potentially more fragile leadership, but in, it's a more robust and sustainable system in the sense that everybody's very invested in it. And and if I dis- if you're the leader and I disagree with you. That's fine, but the six other people who respect you and recognize what you're offering to everybody, they're going to bring me in line as opposed to my being a threat to the system. And so I think to the extent that the folks in Seattle can organize themselves around a um, a hierarchy, but a hierarchy that preserves these values that they're fighting for right now, then I think there is some some hope in that. Yeah. For sure. It's a good example of why quality, mindful leadership is so important. It's so true. We talk about it in the business school every day. Jen, it's been excellent to chat with you today. Thank you so much for sharing your research and your insight with me and our listeners. It's been a real pleasure, Yasmin. Thanks so much. I've been speaking today with Associate Professor of Management, Jen Overbeck. For more information about Jen's research or to get in touch, please visit mbs.edu. Until next time. Melbourne Business School is home to Australia's best MBA and business analytics degrees, as well as short courses for professionals and custom solutions for organisations. Our purpose is unleashing ideas and leaders for a sustainable future. Visit mbs.edu to find out more. Until next time.